When you were a kid, what percentage of the time would you say you actually got caught by your parents when you did something wrong? Yes, the percentage is very small. If your family was like mine now, sometimes you wondered how it is that your parents knew some of the things that they did know about your behavior, right? There was sort of a radar there that you couldn't explain. But when you got right down to it, most of the things that you did wrong, your parents never found out about, at least not the specific events. They probably suspected every one of them, <laughs> but they didn't get to, get to know all of them. Far, far more times than you got caught, you didn't get caught. And you probably sprained your hand a few times patting yourself on the back for being so shrewd, right? So smart that you could deceive your parents so much of the time. Well, at some point, if you have become part of the household of God, the game has changed. You should know that things uh, work a whole lot differently in the family of God than they did in the family you grew up in or that you are growing up in. If, if there were such a thing as a concise handbook for new converts to Christ that, would, that had, you know, the, the big kind of just the, the big bullet points that you need to know as a child of God. One of them should be this statement. Welcome to the community of those who don't get away with sin. Of course, in the final analysis, nobody gets away with sin. But I'm talking about here and now, this side of glory, until the day that we stand spotless in the presence of God, what happens when we sin? Well, we have a very clear assurance from God himself that he doesn't miss anything and that he does not turn a blind eye to our sin. And that is fundamental to the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, that doesn't mean that God pounces every time we make a false step. He is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. Sometimes we as earthly parents struggle to, to act on those attributes of God when we're raising kids. But it does mean that the one who knows every thought that you think, who hears every word that you speak, who sees everything that you do, never turns a blind eye to your sin. And he is always working to break his children of whatever grip they have on sin so that they will turn fully to him and he will be their one legitimate obsession. There is no way for us to do an end run around God's corrective punishment. We certainly can't hide our sin from him and we can't dodge his painful correction at any time that he determines to administer that correction to us. We cannot resist, in the final analysis, what he determines to do with us. Now, as we saw in Psalm 73, those who don't belong to God, we studied that several, several weeks ago, those who don't belong to God may very well have their way at some level during the time they have on this earth. They may with their fist raised against God, in all their pride and arrogance, they may find that things go pretty smoothly. 
But if that's the case, Hebrews 12.8 says that they proved themselves not to be legitimate children of God because the real child of God experiences the sorrowful and painful discipline of a perfect father on a regular basis. You do not want to have it said about you that you get away with your sin. In fact, one of the very worst things that could ever be true of you is that you get away with your sin. On the other hand, one of the very best things that can ever be said about you is that you don't. Now, this sometimes looks uh, to us like a curse, but it's one of the greatest blessings of being a child of God. It is one of the greatest demonstrations of his grace. The eternal penalty for our sin has already been paid in full by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for all who have put their faith in him alone. But the reason that God left us here after redeeming us and making us his children and justifying us in his eyes is so that we will show him off to his creation so that we, by our very lives, will adorn the doctrine of God. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So he saved us in effect for two things, to be his and to do good. To be his and to do good. And so when we who are his don't do good, we are violating, we are cutting off half of his declared purpose for saving us. And God will not let that stand. And so he tells us over and over in his word that he will never turn a blind eye to the sins of his redeemed people. And again, he doesn't miss anything. Read Psalm 139 sometime from that perspective. God does not miss anything. So again, one of the best things that can ever be said about you is that you don't get away with your sin. And this powerful passage that we're looking at this morning is God's call to his people when we have been clinging to sin instead of clinging to God. It is his call to us to return to him. It's about what happens when we do, and it's about what happens if we don't. Now, as I see it, you can outline this passage in three simple points. In verses 1 and 2, Zechariah sets the context, and that context itself is a reminder of what has come before. Then in verses 3 and 4, he presents a call, and then in verses 5 and 6, he gives the Judahites, a reminder, again, from their past. And because of the context, that first chunk is also, in effect, a reminder. Another way to look at at this is the way you see it up here. And you can consider it a call to repentance sandwich on two pieces of bitter reminder. Hold the sauce so that you don't get distracted from either of those two components. Remember that God was angry with your fathers, Return to me that I may return to you. Don't be like your fathers who didn't do that when I called to them. And then remember what happened to them. The context. 
is a reminder of a recent and painful lesson. Verse 1 places Zechariah's words in a very specific historical context. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, who was king of Persia, Media Persia. Now, we talked a whole bunch about that historical context last time, and I gave you kind of a, a chart. Uh, if you don't have the chart and need it, see Belen. If you need, if you missed that message, I really do recommend that you go and pull the audio down from, from online and listen to it because the history of this book is absolutely critical to understanding its content. Now, verse one says, it tells us when this happened and the year that's being talked about is widely understood by historians to be 520 BC. In the first verse, uh, Zechariah makes it also very clear where his words are coming from. It says, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet. Like all of the true prophets of God, Zechariah spoke only that which God had revealed. He didn't speak on his own initiative. And Christ, of course, is the perfect, the perfect representative of the prophets in that regard. Who's doing the speaking? Well, it's very interesting in this, in this passage that the one doing the speaking identifies himself five times as Yahweh of hosts. In fact, three times in one verse, which is the, the central call to repentance in verse three, he calls himself Yahweh of hosts. The repetition is so, it's so much that it, if you were listening to this, which is the way people first received it, hearing it read, you would, you would hear that and you would not forget that you had heard it five times in six verses. Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh is God's name. It's the name that he revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai, and when he appeared to Moses in the form of the burning bush and told Moses that he was going to use him to pull his people out of Egypt to deliver them, and Moses said, Okay, Lord, who shall I say sent me? And God said, Tell them, I am has sent you. And that's the word Yahweh. The word hosts means armies. The root word that's used here is used all over the Old Testament to refer both to human and angelic armies. Yahweh is sovereign over every army that exists. He is the Lord of armies. And that will be very important to this passage in this book. Zechariah's audience is the same as Haggai's, the, the book just before this. He's talking to the immediate descendants of the Judahites who had been taken into captivity to Babylon in several waves that started around 607 B.C. After 70 years of captivity, those exiles from Judah, to whom Zechariah was now speaking, had been given the permission and the blessing of King Cyrus of Persia, who had conquered Babylon, given the blessing and permission to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. They did that. They came back to Jerusalem in 538 B.C., and they started rebuilding. But less than two years later, that, that rebuilding was halted because of the fierce opposition that they were getting from the other inhabitants of Canaan at that time. But now, God sent, had sent the prophet Haggai two months before this book starts to be written, and he says to this group of people, start rebuilding again. God says, start rebuilding again. 
And then Darius found Cyrus's decree and he endorsed that rebuilding. Okay, so they've got all systems go to proceed with the rebuilding of the temple. But in order for God's glory to once again, again come and dwell in the Holy of Holies in the temple, the temple has to get finished. And that's not the only stage setting that has to happen before God returns to the midst of his people in Judah. First, things have to be put back on course in the relationship between the Judahites and their God. In verse 2, Zechariah says, Yahweh was very angry with your fathers. Now, that wasn't exactly a newsflash to these guys. They knew that the reason that they had so recently come out of exile in Babylon was because God was very angry with their fathers, right? But the reason God reminded them of his anger with their fathers now is because the jury was still out on them. Would they repeat the sins of their fathers or would they turn to God in faith and obedience? Now, what had their fathers done that had so angered God? We talked about it some last time. I'm not going to rehash all of it. But I think it's important to have in mind at least the most recent events to which Zechariah is referring. What happened in the generations just before this one that he's talking to? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, that we talked about in the worship this morning, the king of Babylon, was commissioned by God himself to act as his instrument of judgment against God's own people, Judah. Through God's faithful prophets, especially through Jeremiah, God had warned the Judahites that this coming judgment, this exile into Babylon, was unavoidable. And they were told that if they would submit to God by humbly submitting to Nebuchadnezzar, it would be well with them, even during their exile in Babylon. God would watch over them. He would take care of them the same way he took care of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, a thousand years earlier, right? The shoes on their feet didn't wear out. He gave them manna from heaven. He took care of them. He judged them. He chastened them. But he certainly didn't reject them. And he's saying, if you will submit, it will be well with you. But they didn't submit to Nebuchadnezzar because they were unwilling to submit to God. After Nebuchadnezzar had effectively conquered the land of Judah and taken two of its kings into captivity, he appointed the brother of one of those kings, a man named Zedekiah, to act as a figurehead king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah's task was simple. Do what Nebuchadnezzar wants, and everything will be well with you and with the Jerusalemites. The reason that some stayed behind, by the way, is because they were so poor and they were of no status so Nebuchadnezzar saw them as no threat and no value. So he left them there. That happened a lot when there were conquests of territories in that time. But Zedekiah decided he was going to be a threat. And he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and against Yahweh, who had sent Nebuchadnezzar. He and the people refused to submit to Nebuchadnezzar's rule. And even worse, Zedekiah stood by while the priests and officials in Jerusalem defiled the temple of Yahweh, which most likely meant that they put idols, false idols, in the temple. That Israel had done that many times. 
When God repeatedly, because of his great compassion, sent his prophets to tell Zedekiah to stop doing that and to submit so that it would be well with him and his people, what did they do with the prophets? They arrested them. They rejected them. They mocked them. And they listened to prophets who told them what they wanted to hear. Prophets like Hananiah. So in 589 B.C., God sent Nebuchadnezzar, those words are important, God sent Nebuchadnezzar to lay siege to Jerusalem. And for 18 months, all the food, all the water, all the supplies were cut off, and the people inside that city suffered the most devastating judgment from the hands of God that had ever befallen his covenant people to that time. It was terrible. And if you want to know how terrible, read Deuteronomy 28 that prophesied the events that would occur in Jerusalem Hundreds of years before they did. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah's reign, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city wall of Jerusalem was breached. And guess who tried to sneak away? Zedekiah tried to sneak out by an opening in the wall by night. But the Chaldean army, who had been hired by Nebuchadnezzar, caught up with him. And the word is, they overtook him. We're going to talk about that word several times today. They overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And they brought him to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, in front of Zedekiah, massacred all the nobles of Jerusalem. And that was the last thing that Zedekiah saw. Because the next thing that happened is that Nebuchadnezzar put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in bronze chains, and carried him off to, to Babylon along with all the rest of the people of Judah and Jerusalem who got carried off. Now that's all laid out in seven chapters of the Old Testament. Second Kings 24 and 25, Second Chronicles 36, Jeremiah 37 to 39, and 52. And those are very exciting passages to read. But the Holy Spirit didn't include the history of those events to entertain us. He included them so that we will know what happens when we reject God's call to return to him. So when you read those passages, you should walk away with your own fear of God greatly enhanced. And if you don't, read them again and again until it is enhanced. When Zechariah called out on behalf of God to this group of Judahites who were now back in Jerusalem after all these years, and he said to them, Yahweh was angry with your fathers. Their historical context for those words should have made them tremble. And it should make us tremble. That's the context. Here's the call. God's call is in two parts, a positive and a negative. The positive in verse 3, therefore say to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return to me, declares Yahweh of hosts that I may return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. There's a reason that's in there three times. Do not be like your fathers, this is the negative, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return now from all your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. First, the positive, return to me that I may return to you. The Hebrew word that's translated return is the dominant word in the Old Testament that we translate repent. 
And that's a good translation as long as the meaning is understood. The meaning is especially clear in this verse because the object is provided, stated. Return to me. Return to God. The word, the Hebrew word just means come back or turn back. And the call to return to God is the essential meaning of every call to repentance in the Bible from cover to cover. For those who are already part of the covenant community of God, it's a call to, to come back to their Redeemer and their Master when they have strayed. But every nation of mankind after Adam and then after Noah, every tribe and tongue and people ultimately began with and traces its history back to the knowledge of the one true God, Yahweh. And so in his sermon to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, Paul said, that God gives life to all, he gives to all life and breath. And he said, all men are the offspring of God, and all men live and move and exist in him. And then on that basis, Paul got to his appeal. He said, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all, everywhere, should repent. Because he is fixed today in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. What that means is come back to God. Most men will not respond to that call because the way is narrow that leads to life and fewer those who find it. But some will. And to those who do return to him, God gives this incomparable promise. He will return to them. He will dwell in their midst. He will be their God, and they will be his people. That promise is central to all four of the Old Testament, the major Old Testament covenants. He will be their God, and they will be his people, and he will dwell in their midst, in the place that he's designated. Now, this, this part is re- important beyond measure that we get this, this return to me thing right. See, real repentance has an endpoint, always. It has an object, and that object is God. It is never merely a turning away from something. It is always a turning toward God. And it's personal, not procedural. It's not about having and observing the right list of do's and don'ts. It never was. It never will be. It is a call to relationship and fellowship and communion and unity at the highest and most exalted level. And what makes it so high and so exalted is its object, God. Real repentance is decisively turning away from whatever is keeping you from God by turning to God. By turning to God. It is the expulsive power of a new and infinitely better affection that replaces and shoves aside all other affections. It is turning with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength to the one who made you and who is life itself to you. A decisive return to God 
on Judah's part had to happen before God would return to them. That was true for Zechariah's generation. And it's true in the fullest sense of a generation that is yet to come. Maybe it's this generation. Because many of the promises that we will see in this book have not yet been fulfilled. But how does this return to God happen? What would bring about Judah's genuine return, considering the pathetic track record that they and all of Israel had had up to this point? And what is it that brings about our return to God? Keep that question in mind as we proceed through this book. It's very important. At this point, Zechariah is simply presenting the central exhortation and the central promise of the book. Return to me that I may return to you. That's the positive side of the call. Verse 4 is the negative side. Don't be like your fathers who didn't return to me. We've already laid out the rebellious acts of that generation's precursors. At this point, Zechariah is saying don't do what they did. Zechariah then concludes his forceful opening of this book by reminding his audience about the outcome of their father's rebellion against God. So he's reinforcing the call with experience, with the reminder that they would know a lot about. What happens if we reject God's call to return to him? And God says, you want to know the answer to that? Look at what happened to your father's. And here's where the welcome to the community of those who don't get away with sin part comes in. (laughs) In verses 5 and 6, Zechariah, having just talked about the failure of their fathers to respond to his call, says, And by the way, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Your fathers who rejected my words, where are they now? They died in Babylon in captivity, the ones who didn't die in the siege. What about the prophets who counseled them to resist my call? Who tickled their ears with false promises of peace? Promises that didn't come from me. What happened to them? Well, let's see. Hananiah was dead just two months after he uttered his false prophecy that the yoke of Babylon would be broken in only a couple of years. Jeremiah corrected that and said, no, 70 years, guys. That's what God said it would be. Even God's true prophets don't live forever. But here's what he says does live forever. My words. God says, my words prevail. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if you belong to God, it's the best thing. But you know what? It's also the most painful thing in your life if you persist in turning away from his word and replacing it with your own. In any any corner of your life, any part of your life, it will be the most painful thing that is true. Your word will fail and God's word will prevail. That's very, very good. Jeremiah 35, verses 12 to 17 Jeremiah said, Then the words of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction by listening to my words? declares the Lord. I have spoken to you, 
again and again, yet you have not listened to me. Also, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them again and again, saying, Turn now every man from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to worship them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I have given to you and to your forefathers. But you have not inclined your ear to me or listened to me. Therefore, verse 17 of Jeremiah 35, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I pronounced against them because I spoke to them and they did not listen and I called them and they did not answer. When the walls of Jerusalem came down and King Zedekiah tried to sneak away, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 39.5 that the army of the Chaldeans overtook him. And that's a military word. It's what happens when one army catches up with another one. They seized him. They brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar. We already talked about what happened after that. There was no way around God's decree. There never is. Not long after the city of Jerusalem was captured and Jeremiah, and, excuse me, and Zedekiah and the Jerusalemites were taken away, the, the remnant, there was still a remnant. Can you believe it? Nebuchadnezzar still left the very poorest of the poor in Jerusalem. It was rubble, but he left them there, and he was going to take care of them. But they became afraid that his army would come and finish the job by taking them captive too. And so they determined to flee to Egypt for protection. Sounds like a great idea, right? Flee to Egypt for protection against Nebuchadnezzar, who was used by God to judge his people. Jeremiah again spoke on God's behalf, and he told that group of the poorest of the poor in Jerusalem, he said, simply submit to God's judgment, and it will be well with you. Stay right where you are in Jerusalem and live peacefully under Nebuchadnezzar's authority, and God will show you kindness, and it will go well with you. In Jeremiah 42, 13 to 17, Jeremiah relayed another declaration to that same group of people because they went to Egypt and they rejected God's call. And in verses 13 to 17 of Jeremiah 42, he says, But if you are going to say, We will not stay in this land so as not to listen to the voice of the Lord your God, listen to this, saying, No, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we will not see war or hear the sound of a trumpet or hunger for bread. And we will stay there. Then in that case, Jeremiah says, listen to the word of the Lord, O remnant, tiny remnant of Judah. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, if you really set your mind to enter Egypt and go in to reside there, then the sword, which you are afraid of, will overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine about which you are anxious will follow closely after you there in Egypt, and you will die there. So all the men who set their minds to go to Egypt to reside there will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence, and they will have no survivors or refugees from the calamity that I am going to bring on them. Whoa. They heard these words, but they feared the sword of Nebuchadnezzar more than they feared the word of the Lord. 
which God calls his sword, right? They feared the threat of famine more than they feared the word of the Lord. So the sword overtook them, and the famine followed closely after them, and they died in Egypt, just as God had said. The next two chapters of Jeremiah, chapters 43 and 44, explain that God sent Nebuchadnezzar to invade Egypt because those Judahites fled to Egypt for help. Because the Judahites went to Egypt for refuge instead of trusting in God as their refuge, instead of obeying his command to them to remain in Judah and to submit to the one he had appointed over them, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar did to Egypt what he had done to Judah. And think about this, this poor remnant of Jerusalemites who could have remained in the city under the protection of Nebuchadnezzar were killed by Nebuchadnezzar. All that remained of them at the end of the, the whole story in Jeremiah forty-four fourteen was a little tiny fraction of, of a remnant in Judah. And they were, they were the dirt poorest of the poor. <laughs> so let's recap these two episodes, real quickly, in light of this word, overtake. This, to me, is very powerful. When Zedekiah tried to do an end run around God's decree, God sent Nebuchadnezzar's army, and they overtook him. That's the word that's used when they caught up with him. When the poorest remnant of the Jews in Jerusalem violated God's word to them and trusted Egypt rather than Yahweh for protection, God sent Nebuchadnezzar, and he overtook them in Egypt. And that's the word that he uses. He overtook them. But right here in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 6, Zechariah says, he tells us what actually, what actually overtook them. Did not my words and my statutes, God is talking, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? It wasn't the sort of Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't famine. It wasn't pestilence. It wasn't poverty. It was none of the things they feared. It was the thing they should have feared. It was none of the things they trusted. It was the one they should have trusted. It was the word of God that overtook them. It was the words that came from the mouth of the God of armies that overtook them. Jeremiah 44 verse 28 says this, then all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt that reside there will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. Until a man knows that, he knows nothing. And God will do whatever it takes in the lives of us who are his chosen possession until we have that knowledge very clearly sorted out. Until we know whose word will stand. And that is a supremely gracious thing, no matter how much it hurts. It wasn't until the forefathers of Zechariah's present audience had seen God's decree unfold before their eyes and in their lives that they finally turned and cried out to him in Babylon. They finally abandoned their own foolish understanding. They finally abandoned their own word. It was only after they experienced firsthand the truth of all that God had spoken to them through his prophets that their hearts finally returned to their God, to the one whose word is always true. What's the best thing that ever happened to the generation of Judahites that preceded these? 
that Judith Zechariah is talking to? It is that they didn't get away with their sin. It is that their word failed and God's word prevailed. That's a lesson that's far more pleasant when it's learned some other way than firsthand experience. (laughs) But beloved, whatever way you learn it, you will learn it if you belong to God. Everybody will learn it eventually. And it will be a life-defining lesson that changes everything. Your word will fail and his word will prevail. At the very end of this opening passage, in the second part of verse 6, Zechariah 1, Zechariah says that your forefathers finally came to this. They said, as Yahweh of hosts has purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. His word prevailed. The repentant child of God will never say, if only I had been smarter or shrewder, I could have avoided this painful punishment. He will always say, because I refused to turn away from my sin and to come to return to God, his character and his sovereignty made this outcome unavoidable. The repentant child of God will never say, if God really understood what I have to deal with, he wouldn't have treated me this way. He will always say, I reaped what I sowed. I got what God said I would get because of my sin. And thanks be to God that that's the way it works. That's what the repentant sinner will always say. Read David's words in Psalm 51 if you want to know what real repentance sounds like and looks like. Which of your own words are you believing? Which words that didn't come from God, that don't line up with his, whatever they are, they will fail and his word will prevail. Embrace that now, not later, (laughs) not after you have to learn it the hard way. Embrace that now. What do you need to turn back from? Whatever is keeping you from turning fully to God. If you're holding on to bitterness or resentment against anyone in your life, you're exalting your word over his. Your word will fail and his will prevail. If you're counting on your own control over your security or your prosperity... If you're looking to yourself as the source of your well-being in any respect, you are exalting your word over his word, and you can count on the fact that your word will fail and his will prevail. If you're ignoring God's call to purity and insisting instead on indulging your own fleshly desires, your own selfish pursuits, you are exalting your word over his And you can be guaranteed that your word will fail and his will prevail, no matter how much it hurts, because God cares far more about your holiness than he does about your happiness. If you're spending your days in anxiety, counting anything or anything, anyone or anything is worthy of your fear except God alone, then you're exalting your word over his. Your word will fail. And his will prevail. And beloved, that is exceedingly, exceedingly good and gracious. The call to return to God is not a call for half measures. Oh, that we would understand 
that. It's a radical call. It's a call to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus added, with all your mind. All your money, every material possession, all of your time, all of your emotional fervor, every bit of your strength, every part of your physical body, every room of your house, every relationship in your life, everything, all of everything that you have that God has given to you, you are to use to love him. And this is a call that applies to all of us every day, even to us whose sins have been forever paid in full by Jesus Christ, because we all stray from that singular focus some every day because we're doing battle with the flesh. God's call to you this day is return to me, and I will return to you. It is not a call to abandon everything that you love. It is a marvelous call to love God with everything that you have. Dear Father, may the words, these words that were written so very long ago pierce our hearts because they're timeless. Your call to us is as it has always been because we, we are given only one, only one great love under which every other affection must be submitted. And that is our love for you. In fact, every other affection takes on its meaning because of that supreme love. Teach us that, Lord. Let us not shove aside, let us not justify or deny or lie about the things in our life that we, uh, that we are handling according to our word and not yours. Make us submissive, humble, eager, Lord to let your word prevail because it's going to anyway. (laughs) And that's exceedingly good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for calling us out of the darkness into your marvelous light. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.